This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Again, tonight's passage is Luke 8, verses 1 through 15. Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell along the thorns, they they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast and in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are looking at the Gospel of Luke in the spring and winter of 2020. 
And um, we keep looking at the issue of uh, what is the kingdom of God? That's the question that we keep coming up against uh, throughout this sermon series. What does Luke say about the kingdom of God? That would be, uh, I think, the center of uh, what Luke is about. And in this particular uh, parable, we see the way that the kingdom of God spreads. Um, This is telling us, this is Jesus telling us how his kingdom will expand. He went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. That's in verse 1, which might sound uh, like uninteresting or obvious to you. But if you think about the power of this man and what we've seen him do so far, um, he, has, uh, he has healed people. Uh, he has even raised people from the dead. And he has fed people um, miraculously. He's multiplied bread. Um, so you would think that maybe if you're, if you're trying to start a kingdom and, and spread the kingdom that you would just uh, perform healings. Keep giving people food out of nothing. Uh, raise people from the, from the dead. That this is the way that the kingdom would spread. To do all these power uh, miracles. But instead it says in verse 4 that when this crowd, a huge crowd was gathering. And they're coming from town after town. And they're probably partly there to see him because he performs these miracles. But it says that uh, when that scenario occurs, he doesn't perform a miracle. He doesn't make the sky turn different colors or anything like that. He simply talks to them. He speaks to them in a parable. And I think that shows us um, in God's economy, this is how things change uh, among human beings. Is you speak, you teach. It's the verbal uh, content of something that has the power to explode inside of a person. And in this particular case, the parable is about a farmer. So when it says a sower, that's just a farmer in verse 5. And the sower goes out and he starts scattering seed. And Jesus says that those little seeds have the secret magical power to go down into a person's heart and then to grow up in the person and have their entire life change, to bear fruit, to become fruitful. This tiny little seed becomes this gigantic, uh, beautiful stalk of wheat. And the seed is the word of God in verse 11. And so if you're interpreting the parable, you've got to ask the question, uh, what is the word of God here? What, what is Jesus saying the word of God is? And it doesn't really answer that directly in the story, but uh, I would say that the word of God is the identity of the king himself. Um, it is uh, what he calls in verse 10, the, the mystery of the kingdom of God, which I would say is the slow unveiling of, of the word who has become flesh. That's what Christians often describe Jesus to be, the word become flesh. And so uh, this is someone that we have seen early in the, in the story Born of a virgin. It's like a present being slowly unwrapped. And you begin to see uh, things about this uh, king. He's born of a virgin. Then he's worshipped by all these kings that come to see him. Um, That's part of the the secrets are being unveiled. The mystery of the kingdom of God. And then you see him uh, healing people. And then casting out spirits. And forgiving sins. And welcoming in sinners and tax collectors. Uh, We see all these secrets being unveiled about the king. And then I think at the beginning of this story, we see these uh, little snippets about these women. Uh, Another part, another aspect, another unveiling of this king is the way that he treats women. And uh, Luke doesn't make a whole lot of it in terms of the number of words he uses, but it's a very important part of Luke's whole gospel is the way that the king treats women. And it says that, he has brought them right into his inner circle. That, he, that These women are among his disciples, it says in verse 2. That they are women who have been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And when we see someone like Mary um, 
the, the sister of Martha sitting at Jesus' feet in the posture of a disciple and learning from the rabbi, that would have been completely revolutionary. And not only that, but in verse 3, Joanna and Susanna and others are providing for the disciples out of their means. So the people who were bankrolling the entire mission of Jesus were these women. And uh, th- that is another aspect of this person that's come from like, outside the world. You know, he, he's not on the wrong side of history. He's not on the right side of history. He's just completely outside of history. Uh, Jesus is this thing that no one could fathom. He's like a bolt from the blue coming down. This fascinating, you know, beautiful, countercultural man, gracious man. And I think that the promise of this parable is if you get that man down into your heart, like literally in terms of thinking about him, meditating on him, um, mulling over the stories he said, even just looking at these uh, stained glass windows, you see images of this man. If you uh, watch you know, movies about him, if you listen to songs that have been inspired by him, if you go to churches or cathedrals that were built around him, and read poems about him and discuss him with others and just think about him all the time. If that gets down into you and goes deep into your imagination, this parable is saying that will transform your life. Because when that seed of the unveiling of the secrets of the kingdom of God, when Jesus is unveiled to you in all of his beauty and what he has done for you and what he has come to earth to do, it will explode. It is inevitable that it will explode into your life. When you really get what this king is like. In verse 8, it says that some of the seed fell into good soil, and that good soil grew and it yielded a hundredfold. And that's an amazing number. He chose a hundredfold intentionally to be shocking. It was a gigantic yield. And what he's saying is these tiny, tiny little seeds, like a sermon like this, will go into your mind and it will do things to you that you can't even really imagine. The change it will, that has been wrought in a person's soul who has been exposed to these seeds is, is ima- unimaginable. But also there's a warning in this parable that uh, it is very easy um, to, not, to not hear. Uh, it's very easy for the seeds to just get uh, devoured in verse 5. Or to wither away in verse 6. Or to get choked out in verse 7. There are defense mechanisms built into us and the whole world that does not want the seed going deep into your soul. So I want to look at the, uh, the bad soils first. And then I want to look at the good soil. The bad soils, the three bad soils, and then the, the one good soil. Those two things. First of all, uh, the hard path. Some fell along the path, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. That's in verse 5. So, you know, imagine if you're scattering seed and you're trying to grow grass in your lawn. And some of it falls along a path or a sidewalk, and a bird just comes and, and takes it. That's the first seed. It doesn't get anywhere. It doesn't even get an inch below the surface. And it says in verse 12, the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. Which could be applying to you right now if you're not attending to uh, who the word is, then that's happening right now. You're hearing the gospel and it's just bouncing off of you like a seed would off of the sidewalk. And it doesn't even get a chance to go into your mind because you're finding it so implausible. Um, not that you have some argument against it or you figured out rationally that it's, it's false, but it just seems implausible to you. Because we live in this sophisticated, high-tech, global culture, and you have these phones and things like that. And when you hear about this kind of simple stuff, it just seems like that's not, that's not possible. You couldn't believe in a thing like that. 
1947, a great theologian, well, I don't think he was that great, uh, Rudolf Boltman, he was famous. Uh, Rudolf Boltman, a famous theologian, said, people who live in the age of light bulbs cannot possibly believe in miracles. Which, looking back on that, it's just humorous that uh, he would think that something about the invention of a light bulb would make miracles impossible. But what would Rudolf Boltman say today with a space shuttle, with smartphones and Bluetooth and internet and drones? I mean, he would say now in an age like that, it's impossible to believe in miracles. Or, you know, you read about the devil here. And you, you hear the, the word devil and you just think that's not, that's not plausible. That doesn't, that's not part of my mental universe, a, a devil. And again, you haven't really argued anything. You, you haven't really thought hard metaphysically about whether there could be an evil power opposed to God, but it just is implausible to you. And I think part of the reason is the devil has built these structures uh, that stunt your imagination and that um, keep you from thinking about these eternal things, these spiritual things. 50% of Americans last year had three conversations that were spiritual or less. So half the people in America had three or less spiritual conversations last year. And that shows how well Satan has created these structures that keep us from thinking about spiritual things, eternal things, life after death, uh, forgiveness, heaven, hell, God, the devil, these kind of things. There's a famous uh, Austrian Christian sociologist named Peter Berger, and uh, he defined them as plausibility structures. He called these things plausibility structures. And he said that um, there are these, these lies or these, these statements uh, that we get down into our head, and they, just, they are these structures of life we live in, and just, they make the supernatural seem implausible. For instance, science is the only legitimate way to knowledge. You've never really you know, necessarily thought that, but it's operating in the background because you've just been trained that way so much. Or another one would be any talk of faith uh, does not belong inside of a classroom. Like in a, in a legitimate classroom where you're studying things, faith is, uh, is not relevant. Or another one would be that in, in politics, in, in political discussion, or in the, the court of law, um, you know, your religious beliefs should play no part at all. Those kind of things. And just dozens of these things are operating in the background. And because of those things, you, this, the supernatural seems completely implausible. And again, you hear something like the devil and you just think, no, the seed just bounces off. That's the first seed. The, the seed does not even, like right now, you're not even taking it at all. You've already dismissed it out of hand. The second soil is uh, the seed goes in a little bit, but it, it withers away. Nothing comes up at all. There, there's no growth at all. Verse 13, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But there's no root. And so they believe for a while, but in the time of testing, when hardship comes, uh, when drought comes, anything like that, it dies. It withers away. Um, so these are people who hear the gospel. They think they know the gospel. They think they know the word, uh, the secrets of the kingdom. But actually, uh, they don't know it at all. They have understood uh, only half of it or less. And the reason they, they receive it with joy is because they think that the gospel means that your life is going to go well. And that uh, you will have success and maybe self-fulfillment, health, um, wealth, these kind of things. That, uh, that The gospel would say um, something like, you know, I will never have chronic pain. That that could never happen if you believe the gospel. Or I will never be utterly lonely and by myself 
You know, if I believe the gospel, that's never going that scenario is not going to happen. Or my marriage, my family could never fall apart if I believe the gospel. And again, these things are not directly communicated to you, but that is what you really believe when you believe the gospel. That, um, you know, there's a famous verse, I know the plans that I have for you uh, to prosper you. Beautiful verse from Jeremiah, but people take that and they think that that means that your life's going to go well. As far as you define the word well. And that's not what Jeremiah meant at all. Because actually Israel was just completely wiped out. And so um, this thinking of this false gospel can kind of persist in your mind, maybe even through the 30s. Like it's hard to get through your 30s and still believe that. But when you get into your 40s or, you know, 50s, the, the failure is going to happen. Some massive failure. Something horrible. Maybe it's not even a failure, but something terrible will happen to you. And if you believe this shallow gospel, this one inch below the surface gospel, your faith will wither. It will not be able to withstand this horrible thing, this terrible breakup in your life. So imagine you meet someone whose life is falling apart and she's in her 40s, maybe she, maybe she just turned 40. Her job's not going well. Her career's not going well. Her marriage is really struggling. And you tell her uh, Jesus died for you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. That was a big deal in the 80s and 90s. I don't think people speak that way anymore. But that was the way a lot of people uh, shared the gospel. Jesus died for you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. And so this person hears that. They receive it with joy. And she's growing. And you know, she seems to be getting involved in church. And, and very much, much happier. A lot more peace of mind than she had. But then let's say she, she gets fired. And let's say that marriage does end up failing. And now she's turned 50. And she believed for a while. Uh, but all the stuff she thought she believed is completely shot. Uh, the gospel she thought she believed. She thought she knew the word, but that was not the real word. Her beliefs were far from the word. And so the suffering caused the gospel to wither and die. And, um, you know, I know that that is happening in some of your lives, that things are so hard that you just wonder, can the gospel really be true? Does the gospel really mean that kind of suffering could happen in my life? And the second soil is that you've got to be careful about those thoughts because that could make your faith wither. The third soil is definitely the most relevant to us and the most insidious to everyone in this room, uh, no doubt about it. Because in this, in this soil, there is faith. And I know that the vast majority of you would say you believe. So you, you say you have faith. And so in this, in this soil, there is growth. So there is some kind of uh, fruit that's being born by your faith. Uh, verse 14, they hear, but as they go on their way, uh, that little stalk of faith and that fruit is choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. I find that absolutely fascinating and so challenging. That the three great enemies of uh, God's kingdom spreading in this world are not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, that's what I would have thought, or I mean, you might have thought that. Um, that sex, drugs, and rock and roll are the way that you're going to lose your faith. But Jesus says, no, no, it's, uh, it's pleasure, it's cares, and it's riches. That whenever a society gets really wealthy, um, such as South Korea, great prosperity, uh, the gospel always withers. Uh, you know, Satan has a, a, a great strategy to always make the gospel wither in a place that had revival. And South Korea had a major revival. Same thing's happening in China. Uh, now that China's becoming more prosperous, all these house churches that were once vital and spreading, they're withering and dying because of pleasure, uh, riches, and cares. You know, it's just as simple as buying another gadget, 
uh, planning another vacation, another uh, home improvement, another new house, more hours at work to pay for these things. These are fairly innocent things in themselves, but what Jesus is saying is he knows that where your heart goes and your heart begins to wander from him into these channels and it goes on and on and on. And what's so interesting is we choose to have a certain lifestyle and then we don't realize uh, that that lifestyle is going to create in us a, a kind of a, a busyness, a pressure, a, a need to hurry and, and not rest that will choke out uh, the fruit in our lives. And, you know, I buy all this stuff that I don't need. I'm sure many of you do as well. It's incredibly tempting because you can buy it with a click of a button now. And I'm hoping that that package, that there was one that came today... Um, and, you know, you're hoping that little package will give you at least an hour, maybe three hours. Maybe you're hoping a month of some kind of pleasure, a little jolt or something that will help you. But, um, you know, I noticed that those things that I order, for the most part, uh, they pile up. They just start piling up. And a lot of them start to break, especially electronic gadgets. And then you get anxious about these things. I have this whole drawer and next to my bed, it's a whole drawer that is full of semi-broken electronic attachments that are small, to my phone mostly. And uh, I never needed them, and I hate that it's piling, and I can't throw them away. I can't think what to do with these things. So um, I've got a lot of tape around them, and I've spent a lot of time you know, worrying about them. My, my computer shift button is now kind of semi-stuck because I spilled some sweet iced tea on it, and the sugar just made that thing stick. And I can't tell you how much frustration there, there is in me every day when I try to hit that shift button and it kind of gets stuck. And these are the kind of things, small, small things, but I mean, how much of our focus turns to junk management? Just that kind of... And right when you're about to get the will up to finally pray, you know, I've made this resolution to pray, and then you're thinking about your shift button, and like your time is taken away by that. And how many evening hours... Um, just decay into emotional eating. I mean, I know that that happens to me all the time. Like, I've got these plans to read something really cool, and then uh, I end up eating stuff that I don't really, didn't plan to eat, don't really need to eat at all, but it just, it helped me somehow satisfy some emotional need. And uh, how many weekend plans that we have just morph into screen time? I mean, it's really sad how easily it can just degenerate into something. You plan to hike, uh, you plan to take a walk with someone, maybe go to a museum, and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you've just been looking at things all day on a little tiny screen. And all of these uh, soils, they have the same function. They block the seed from dropping down, down into your imagination, uh, into your, the nerve center of your life. Verse 10 puts it like this, seeing but not able to see, hearing but not able to understand. And one Catholic philosopher, uh, Michael Novak, he says that you can divide three uh, beliefs into three kinds. Number one, you have your public beliefs. This is what you tell people you believe. So I would say uh, prayer and Bible reading are extremely important. That'd be my public belief. Your private belief is what you tell yourself that you think you believe. So I would say, uh, I know that it's very important for me to pray and I really want to pray. And I do pray and read the Bible. Um, I should do that more. That's your private belief. So that's deeper than your public belief. Your core belief, the deepest level, that's what you actually do. You never violate your core beliefs. And that's what's got to change. So in my, in my core belief, I would say to myself, you know, actually, I don't really think prayer does a whole lot. 
I say that I, I say that it does, and I tell myself that I think that it does. I don't really think the Bible is that relevant to my life. I don't really think that in going there, I will get much out of that experience. I think I'll end up befuddled and uninterested, and so I'm just go back to this other thing. And again, you, you just don't violate your core beliefs. And so the, the goal in this parable is for the gospel to descend, the word to go beneath your public, public belief, beneath your private belief, and down into your processor, where the things really spin and happen in your life that make things happen. You say you believe the gospel, but then your calendar says not so much. And you say you believe the gospel, but then your checkbook says not, not so much. And those are the ways you can see what your core beliefs are. So those are the bad soils. Uh, what about the good soil? What about the good news? The good soil, uh, the good soil grows because of, of the depth. In this parable, it's about how far down it goes. Um, the depth of apprehension of the beauty of Jesus Christ is what will make your life different. How, how deeply you are, your mind is filled up, is lit up with the beauty of Jesus Christ. That will make you grow. James puts it like this. This is the brother of Jesus writing 30 years later. Uh, James says, humbly accept the word planted in you that can save you. I love thinking about how James got that from his brother, from this parable. He's kind of riffing on his brother's words. James says, humbly accept the word planted in you that can save you. Humbly accepting it is what it means that it, it grows. Um, verse 15, the good soil are those who hearing the word, and I think the key verb is hold it fast. Hold it fast in an honest and good heart. Um, humbly accepting and holding fast with an honest heart are kind of synonymous. And that's what, that's what we need, is to humbly accept it, to hold on to it with an honest heart. In other words, a sincere heart, where you're not fooling yourself, and you say this is what you believe and this is what you actually believe. This is an honest heart. You're holding it fast. I looked at a video of how a seed grows. But I just wanted to, couldn't remember this from biology class. But the seed goes down. Uh, the seed actually breaks open. So it sends out this little thing into the, into the soil around it. And it grabs a hold. The little tentacles that it sends out grab a hold of the soil and of the moisture. And they begin to take that stuff up into itself. And it has to grow this kind of large underground foundation of these roots in order to hold up anything. So it doesn't start going up until it has enough stuff down here that's holding fast to that soil that makes it grow. And then it can start to shoot up with a strong foundation. Just like if you're building a building, you put in a strong foundation before you can start going up. That's exactly the same way with these seeds. And to bear fruit, uh, you've got to grow deep roots in your mind. Down in the core beliefs, you've got to grow deep roots. I think that you could actually describe it in terms of neural pathways. I don't really know anything about neural pathways. I just know that you can carve these things out by just repeated thinking. And there's these new neural pathways forming your brain. And, and so if you do that, every time you read a verse, uh, every minute you spend praying, uh, every uh, moment of silence and uh, Everything you do where you're talking about him or reading about him or thinking about Jesus and getting him deeper down, another little root, you know, sticks out in your mind. That neural pathway is formed. Uh, and the wheat, because the foundation's getting bigger, it can grow higher. And the fruit comes out. And the fruit comes out because the roots are so big. The root system's so big. The root ball. Uh, verse 8. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He changes the metaphor from soil to the ear. And, uh, and having uh, ears to hear would probably be the most important application of this passage is, do you have ears to hear? Not just ears, I and mean, we, we all have ears, but do you have ears to hear? And, uh, you know, our ears are kind of useless a little bit. They're floppy. You can't really make your ears move very much. I know some people can a little bit, but if you try right now to rotate your ears, you can't do it. Uh, they sit on the side of our heads, and they're kind of floppy and immovable. They do a decent job, but a dog's ears, um, they have 18 muscles. that They're up here, and they can go like this and like this and like that. So they have unbelievable abilities to hear. Um, and so the second I close my car door, like I park close my car door, look at my window, and my dog's face is right there, looking at me. Because it has so many uh, muscles that can make its ear open up and hear me. And so having ears to hear is like being completely arrested by the Word of God. And when the Word is spoken, you're like my dog, sitting with his face, like staring right at me, just ready for me to come in that door. That's what having ears to hear means, is that you are... Your imagination is just lit up by the gospel. And uh, it, it means that um, there's some encounter with the story of Christ's redemption. Uh, it could be a book, a movie, a song, a painting, whatever it is. Um, someone just telling you something. You have some encounter with that word and uh, the core beliefs start to shift around. Uh, when you have ears to hear, uh, that's happening. I saw um, that uh, documentary about Mr. Rogers last night. Um, won't you be my neighbor? And there was a scene in that with uh, this amazing uh, song that the little uh, tiger was singing to Lady Elaine. And the tiger was saying he thinks he's a mistake and his life uh, is, is worthless. And she's singing a song about how he's loved and known and treasured. And they just keep singing this duet. It's un- absolutely unbelievable. And I think that some of my core beliefs were changed when that happened. But arrested by that moment. And I know that when I read the book Mere Christianity when I was a 21-year-old atheist, I read this book by C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Christianity, and nothing had ever happened like that in my life. I had read some books before that I didn't really care a whole lot, but when I read that book, it was just like, it, like it had hands and it came out and just seized me, just grabbed me by the lapel and just said, shook me. Like, this is, going, this is going to change your life. And I actually wrote that down uh, the very first time I read any of it. I said, this book is going to change my life. I didn't even know what mere or Christianity meant when I picked the book up. But I looked back, and I took a, the first time I ever journaled, I wrote a journal of, um, of what ideas I was getting from the book. And I looked back, and I actually wrote down like a quarter of the book in that journal. Because it was so, my ears were such on high alert. It was like God was you know, jingling his keys, and I was just right there. I was right there to hear um, the Bible uh, through the words of C.S. Lewis, through the, you know, coming, it doesn't have to be obviously the literal words of Scripture. This book was not the literal words of Scripture, but Scripture was pouring out. Streams of revelation were coming through this. At the end of uh, every elder meeting, we have, these, we have elders here. That's part of our leadership. We have elders and deacons. And the elders, at the end of every elder meeting, uh, we pray for each other. Um, so we take 20 minutes at the end of every session meeting called a session meeting and we 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 pray we give this person a chance to speak about how they need prayer then we lay hands on them and we pray for them and um 
Two of them recently have asked, in the last six months, two of them asked if, if God would give them a desire to read the word. That was their prayer request. And uh, we prayed for them. And both of them have reported since then this sustained, slow, gradual, but sustained transformation and the desire to open up the Bible and read that Bible every single day. And, and that is how the kingdom grows. It seems such a small thing. Uh, it might even seem like impertinent or privatized or um, how could you care about that when the coronavirus is spreading or there's global warming happening and you're asking for prayer, but that's how the world changes. As, as we bear fruit with patience, it says in verse 15. You know, we want this instant gratification, like lose 10 pounds in one week. Uh, but imagine a weight loss program that said you can lose 20 pounds in two years if you stick to this diet and this exercise regimen. And it's very, it would probably be a very, very simple change. You know, lose 20 pounds in two years. Nobody would ever buy that. Nobody would care about that. But that's the way the kingdom grows, is slowly. I mean, it takes week, eight months to grow. So that's what the hearers of the parable are thinking about is the way that wheat. And so uh, we need a lot of encouragement here. You need to encourage each other. You need to encourage me. I need to encourage you. Uh, because this growth is often imperceptible. Like you can barely see it at all. And so you need to ask people, um, where am I growing? You know, where, do, where do you see me growing? And you need to tell people when you see them growing. And sometimes you have to look over a five-year span and say, I've seen in the last five years, I've seen this growth happening. Um, someone recently told my friend, over the last 15 years, you've grown so much in your patience with your spouse. And you used to make all these critical comments about your spouse in public, and now you're so much more affectionate and affirming. And it was a little bit jarring for them to hear that. Like, you mean you knew 15 years ago that I made all these critical comments in public about my spouse? But actually, in the end, it was incredibly healing to hear that. And if you just think of someone that you know, and what could you tell them? Where have you seen kingdom growth in them that's happened over years? Not just months, but think about that. Maybe email them or just talk to them, text them, leave them a voice message. But the, the kingdom grows slowly with patience because the king did. The king unveiled himself slowly over the course of 33 years. Think about the lifespan of a seed, uh, a seed that it slowly emerges from the ground, a little tiny green stalk first. It's just a little thing coming up out of the ground. Of course, the roots are already formed, but the, the green shoot comes up and then it, the stalk begins to grow up. And you don't really know what it's going to be when it first pops out. Like those um, daffodils that came out maybe a month ago, you didn't know what it was going to be at all. And then the tulips that are just starting to come out, you don't know what the bud is going to be. You just see the stalk. But then at some point the bud does begin to appear. And you start to know more about this seed, the lifespan of the seed. And then actually uh, the thing starts to open. And then you know a lot more. Like the, the color at the very center of that thing, you don't know at all yet. You don't know what that thing's going to look like when it blooms. But at some point, the small flower really opens up and you see the whole thing in all of its beauty. And that's what happened with the unveiling of Christ. Uh, at this point in the story, the disciples have seen a stalk. They, they know a lot of cool things about him, the, all the things I mentioned earlier, but they don't yet know what the bud or the flower is going to look like, do they? The secrets are being slowly unveiled. And so for the flower to open... Uh, that's got to happen at the very end of the story. And it opens in a very strange way. You don't know, you know, it's, when that thing is like this, the disciples are probably thinking one thing. And then when it goes like this, it's shocking what happens. 
Because when all the secrets of the kingdom are unveiled, this man who was a great healer, a great teacher, a great liberator, this strong hero applauded by thousands, beloved by thousands, is suddenly executed. He's suddenly cut down and crucified. And if you know the Christian story too well, you're not amazed by that. But that's an amazing story. If you look at ancient Near Eastern biographies, Roman, Greco-Roman biographies, they don't have stories like that. That's not how they end. But this man, who is so glorious, is suddenly arrested, put on trial, found guilty, given the death penalty, tortured, and then he dies in the most horrible way anyone's ever died. He, he has died through the means of crucifixion. Um, but then... Three days later, he rises. Uh, He defeats death. He ascends to heaven. And he is here with us now. And uh, and that's what we celebrate, the presence of this king. This is the, uh, if the flower is still growing, you know, it's here with us now. I mean, the the thing has grown all all over the world, and now he's here right now at this table. And he offers himself to you. Uh, On the night, on that very night that he was about to be crucified, uh, when he was betrayed, Cut down on that night.